Good morning. Today we're continuing in the book of James. We are in the fifth chapter, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. In the Pew Bible, it is on page 1013. James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of God. Well, we're drawing towards the end of the book of James. We have two more sermons to look forward to today and then next week, and then we'll be diving headfirst into the Easter season where we will look at Isaiah's servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53, so we have that to look forward to. So we've been in the book of James now for the last uh, several weeks. We took a little break over Christmas. Real wisdom, real faith is what we've entitled this sermon series what, what do real faith, real wisdom look like? How do we get there? What would our lives exhibit if we were living out of real wisdom and real faith? And so in today's passage, um, grumbling, lying, impatience, quitting, clearly those are not characteristics of real wisdom and real faith, but things like endurance and patience that James talked about, those are the characteristics of real wisdom and real faith, aren't they? So our sermon today, establish your hearts, establish your hearts. Why? Because our hearts need hope, don't they? Everything starts in the heart, doesn't it? Show me a person who's a grumbler, and I'll show you a heart problem. Show me an impatient person, I'll show you a heart problem. So today, we're going to look at what does it mean to have real wisdom, real faith that launches from the heart. And our hearts need hope, don't they? Our lesson this morning is this, let your heart be strengthened by the inevitable return of Christ. Let your heart be strengthened or established by the inevitable return of Christ. The great theologian and philosopher Charlie Brown said, <laughs> the secret of happiness is having three things to look forward to and nothing to dread. 
He's, he's not far off. <laughs> he's not far off. James would say it this way. The key to happiness is having one really big thing to look forward to. Jesus coming back. And when you are trusting in Jesus, you have nothing to dread. That's how he would say it. This morning, we're going to see how James shows us our heart, our character, and our words. So from the inside out, things begin in our heart. They flow then into the, what, what's in our heart becomes our character. And then that flows out of us as our words. Okay? But what I'm going to do with you this morning is I'm going to reverse that. Okay? We're gonna, we'll start on the outside and work our way back in. So we'll talk about our words first, then our character, then our hearts. Okay? Okay. <laughs> Joy's with me. Good. Okay. So first of all, our words. James speaks to two forms of speech that are very problematic. The first one is grumbling, and the second one is, is lying. And he talks about making these oaths, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But first, grumbling. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another. Are we a church of grumblers? Are you a grumbler? Who in the church do you grumble against? The word, the word grumble, it literally means a long sigh. It can mean groaning or crying or just complaining, being a complainer. You know, Jesus ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago. And so for 2,000 years, we Christians have had a lot of time to get frustrated with each other, haven't we? Christians, Christians are, are not devoid of grumbling and turning on each other and backbiting. In Galatians, he's, Paul says, don't devour each other. The irony is that in, the, in James 5, the first six verses, Pastor Mark preached last week, he's talking about how the rich oppress the poor. In this section, that, that's still in view. He's basically saying, now he's talking to the poor, those who are oppressed, and yet even as the oppressed, what do we do? We turn on each other. We grumble against one another. Isn't it, isn't it strange how trials and suffering that we're all sharing in can make us turn on each other? COVID. We've had two years of this trial of a pandemic, and Christians have turned on each other in the midst of it. Racial injustice in our nation, and Christians turn on each other. Instead of loving and supporting each other and trying to understand, we accuse, oh, that's your CRT, you're, the, you're what? No, you just love each other. Have a little compassion. 
And then, and then we won't even get into all the little tiny small things within just our church body. I won't name them. I have a list here. I'm just going to skip my list. <laughs> it's too triggering. <laughs> In chapter 5, verse 4, we see the oppressed crying out to God. Wisdom, true wisdom, real wisdom says, cry out to God. If you, if you need to grumble, grumble to God. If, if you need to sigh, if you need a long sigh, sigh before the Lord. This is wisdom. Take your suffering, your lament, your cares, your concerns, and cast them before the throne of Jesus. That's wisdom. That's faith. Because then when you come together as a body, when you come into church, you've already expressed all this to Jesus, and you don't have to poison the community with all that same stuff. If you've got to vent, vent to Christ. So now when you come into your small group and you come into your class, you've at least processed it a little bit. Be like Job who processes it before the Lord. I mean, did Job, did Job grumble? Did Job come? Yeah, honestly, have you read the book of Job? He's lifted up in this passage as this, this man of great patience, but hey, let's be honest, we've all read the book. It's like 25 chapters of him complaining, and then God shows up. And at the end of the day, though, Job never lost his faith in God, did he? Why not grumble? Verse 9 continues, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. In James chapter 4, he warned us, don't judge each other because then you judge the law. You're judging the law of love. To grumble, to cry, to, to complain it is to not love. Simply put, it's to not love. Some of us are like the Israelites. Remember them? They came out of Egypt, hit the wilderness, and immediately started grumbling, saying, let's go back. Some of, some of us just want to grumble our way right back into slavery to sin. But the judge is standing at the door. Have you ever, have you ever um, been at work and you're talking with your coworkers and you're, and you're complaining about the boss? And then you realize the boss is standing right behind you. Anybody had this experience? I did once, years ago. That's kind of what James is saying. Christians, you're sitting around grumbling and complaining, and Jesus is literally standing right at the door, listening to you. Hmm. I heard that. <laughs> I heard that complaint. Why? Because when we complain, well, I'm not complaining about Jesus, I'm complaining about Pastor Brady. And Jesus is saying, that's the same thing. That's the same thing. It's not love. It's not, it's not the royal law of love. Instead, understanding that the judge is coming, that Jesus is at the door, that he's going to make everything right, that he's going to fix everything, should allow our hearts, should allow our hearts to move forward in peace and patience and perseverance. The second speech pattern that he speaks of is 
is lying. We're going to call it lying. Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, don't swear either by heaven or earth or any other oath. When he says don't swear, he's not talking about cussing. He's not talking about like, oh, you used a a bad word. No, he's talking about making promises that you don't keep. You're You're swearing by heaven and earth. You're making oaths. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no, no, Christian. Do you keep your word? Do you have integrity? That's what James is saying. That's that's the basis. In, In the ancient world, an ancient ethic actually would honor dishonesty at times. You were, you were supposed to be dishonest to anybody who's your enemy. It was, liter- it was morally okay to lie to your enemies. So even in the Old Testament, we see some examples that kind of get kind of fuzzy for us, like Rahab. Rahab kind of lies. And, and we look at that and we go, we don't get that. But in that culture, it would have been considered honorable to lie to your enemy. But then here comes Jesus, and Jesus teaches us this radical, crazy thing. You don't have any enemies. Love your enemies. And if, ever, if, if nobody's an enemy, then what does that do to lying? It gets rid of it. We, there's, no need to, there's no need to lie. In the Old Testament... We read it, Pastor Andrew read it to us. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God made oaths. And the people made oaths back to God. At at Mount Sinai, God stood up and said, I solemnly swear to be your God. And then the people gathered around the mountain and said, I'm, you know, I'm being silly. But they stood up and said, we solemnly swear to be your people. But listen, church, you are not Old Covenant people, are you? You are New Covenant people. And under the new covenant, God has made an oath to you. God has sworn an oath. And God has sworn an oath as God, and God has sworn an oath as man, the man Christ Jesus. Where does that leave us? It means we don't have to swear any oaths. As new covenant Christians, it's this simple. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Simple honesty. Why? Because God's doing it all. God, God, is, God is the maker of the new covenant. God is the one at work. So, say what you mean and mean what you say. Be credible. Keep your commitments. Have you signed the church covenant, the church membership covenant at Grace Baptist Church? Keep it then keep it. When you put your name there, you are saying yes. If you've ever done a membership interview with me, I read the sentence and then make you say yes. Will you do this? Yes. Do you affirm this? Yes. Okay, so let your yes be yes. Did you stand up before God with with your spouse and say yes? Maybe, Maybe it was I do. Will you, Brady, take joy to be your spouse forever? Yes. Okay, then let your yes be yes. Let your yes be yes. At work, are you telling your boss that you'll do something, you'll get the project done within a certain amount of time? Then let your yes be yes. Let your yes be yes. 
at home. Are you telling your children? Are you, are you saying to them things that you'd like to do or that you're going to do? Then let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Be faithful to your word. Be faithful to your word. Heart, character, words. Heart, character, words. Let's move backwards now to character. Our words reveal our character. Our words reveal our character. James is going to talk about two character traits. He gave us two speech patterns. Now he's going to give us, he's also going to give us two character traits, patience and steadfastness. Patience with people, steadfastness in situations. Patience with people, steadfastness in situations. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. Be patient. Four times he'll say that. Four times he'll use the word patient in this passage. It means to put up with somebody, to be long-suffering, to forbear. This is a gospel commandment. This isn't law. This is gospel grace. Why? Because it's empowered by God in us. This isn't like the Old Testament law where God said, you got to act a certain way and you got to figure out how to do it. No, by the gift of the Holy Spirit in us, by the unconditional love and grace upon us, God's yes being yes, this is, this is now something that we can actually do by the power of God. The Bible tells us that it is God's patience that saved us, Romans 2.4. It says that love is patient, 1 Corinthians 13, meaning God is patient. In Galatians 5, it tells us that one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. So Christian, you have patience inside of you. You can be patient with annoying people. You don't know my people, Brady. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I got an idea. He says, look at the farmer, verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being what? Patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, here, here's what the farmer knows. He, he doesn't know exactly when it's going to rain, but he knows it's going to rain. In first century Palestine, in Palestine, even today, there are early and late rains. There's October rains and there's April, April rains. And they know that. And they, plan, they, they plan their planting and harvest around those rains. How can, how can we stand up and, and trust that God will always send the rain? Because he promised he would. It's called the Noahic Covenant. You remember that one? It's the one we never talk about. <laughs> In the Noahic Covenant, God said, every year there will be seasons. Forever. It's always going to rain. You can always count that eventually it will rain. We don't know when it's going to rain. We don't know what day it's coming, but we know it will rain. 
and we can plan around that. Okay, so what's the point? It's Christ's return. Christ will return. No one knows the day or hour. That's true. But like the rain, we know it's coming. We know it's coming. Christ is going to return. It is inevitable. He is at the door, James says. And if I know that, if I know that Christ is going to return and He's going to deal with everybody and He's going to make right every situation and all perfect justice and all perfect righteousness will be brought forth by Him, if I actually believe that, can I be patient with people? And to be impatient is to show that we're not really having that faith. He also tells us to be steadfast, to be steadfast. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Literally, this word means to stay when everybody else leaves. The steadfast person hangs in there. The steadfast it's endure, endures. It's often translated as endures. The steadfast person doesn't quit. The steadfast person doesn't give up. This takes bravery. It takes courage. James 1 verse 12, he already used this word. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Listen to me, Christian. Listen to me. The Christian life is one of endurance. I know you are saved as your pastor. I know you're saved not because of some profession you made when you were six. Not because you walked an aisle when you were 26. I know you're saved because you're enduring. I see the endurance. I see you still trusting God today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day, every day. I ask you, every day, I ask you, and you still are trusting Him. You're enduring in the faith. That's how we know somebody's saved. No endurance was the profession even real. I've been reading, I've been reading this little book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, He's, a, he's not a Christian, but he's a sociologist, a historian. He talks about, he, obviously the title of the book, he talks about how did Christianity grow and spread and become this worldwide religion? And he, and he takes us back to the first century when the plague hit the city of Rome. It hit the Roman Empire. And everybody was fleeing. Like in the city of Rome, everybody was running out of the city because they didn't want to catch the plague and die. But guess who stayed? Guess who stayed in the city? The Christians, the church. And many of them even died as they literally rolled up their sleeves and served the sick. But Stark says, when people saw what the Christians did, it made people say, they got something worth dying for. They, ha they have a hope beyond plague. Are you enduring? 
How much of your life is just spent planning your escape? All right, I'll do this ministry for another week or two, and then I'm done. I can't wait till I retire and can get out of here. Ouch, Brady. Too personal. Listen, listen. How, how much of your life is just like daydreaming about, well, as soon as this happens, then I can do greener grass, right? Greener grass, greener grass. Be steadfast is the command. 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How do we do this? Because God fills us with steadfastness. Colossians 1, 11, being strengthened with power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That's, there's our two words. The same two words James is using. Endure and be patient. Where does it come from? Strengthened from Christ. Strengthened from Christ's power. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Our hearts, our hearts directed to the steadfastness of Christ. Christian, you can do it. You can be steadfast. You can endure. And when we endure, we are blessed. Literally, it has to do with being honored. The blessed person here is the honored person. We honor people who endure, don't we? President Zelensky, everybody's looking at this guy as a hero. Why? Because he didn't run away from Kiev, did he? He said, I'm going to stay. I'm staying with my people. I'm li I'll literally go down with the ship if I have to. We honor that. We honor people who stick with it. We honor people who are faithful. We honor people that, that when, the, when the going gets tough, they don't bail. Where do you need endurance today? In your marriage, in your ministry, with your parents, with your kids, with that friendship? Keep going. Keep going, Christian. Keep going to small group. Keep setting up that coffee in the class. Keep doing the things that nobody even knows you're doing. Keep, keep doing the things that nobody recognizes. Keep caring for your aging parents. Keep showing up for nursery duty. Keep reaching out. Keep praying. Keep forgiving. Have you hit, have you hit number 490 yet? then keep going. Keep going. It's not quitting time, Christian. Rest is coming. Rest is coming. But it's not quitting time. It's not quitting. Take, yes, take care of yourself. Yes, self-care. Yes, take a break. Yes, veg once in a while. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Pray. Do all the... Yes, but don't quit. Don't quit. Endure, trust, love. How? How, Brady? How do I do this? First of all, 
I'll give you a few things that can help us endure. Verse 11, understand the character of God. God is compassionate and merciful. Look at the end of verse 11. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you know what that means? It means that he never quits. Has God quit on you? Raise your hand if God has quit on you. Good job. He hasn't. You know why he hasn't? Because he's compassionate and merciful. He's compassionate and merciful. Also, understand that in this life, only endurance can change a heart. Every parent in the room knows this. When we're raising little kids, if we want to see our children grow up into, A, into just socially acceptable human beings, let's start there, but even more into, into people of faith, parent, how many parents would say, yeah, that's the easiest thing I've ever done? <laughs> I barely had to work hard at that. No, nobody says that. It's hard. It's hard. You have to endure. Nobody changes. Nobody's heart changes without somebody enduring alongside of them, without somebody helping them pick up the weight, without somebody, Galatians 6, bearing the burden with them and so fulfilling the law of Christ. Those of you that have discipled people, how many disciplers in the room would say, yeah, that's, it's, it's easy. Discipleship's a piece of cake. Ministry? <laughs> I laugh at ministry. <laughs> Nobody says that. It's hard. It takes endurance. You have to get in there, and you got to fail, and then you got to get back on the horse. Don't forget Job's story. Job's story ended, and Job's story, I, I believe that Job's story is a true story, is most likely a, a true story, but it's also, it's also a picture, isn't it? The ending of Job's life, what happens? God restores everything to him. That's a picture of heaven for us, isn't it? One day, God is going to restore everything. Don't forget that, Christian. It's too hard. It's too hard. But one day, God's going to make it right. God's going to give you back. Jesus actually said, God will restore you a hundredfold. Job got restored one for one. Jesus says, I'll restore you a hundred to one. And then like the prophets, feel, just, just feel the happiness of God when you endure. Did you know that your endurance by faith pleases God. When you, when, you, when you stay with your adult kids, don't quit on them. When you're caring for that sick person day in and day out, and believe me, I get it, it's hard. When you show up to those third graders every Sunday, and it feels like you're just whacking yourself in the head for an hour and a half, Did you know that that pleases our Lord? 
It puts a smile on his face. And he honors you like he did the prophets. Heart, character, words. Heart, character, words. Now we move all the way back to the heart. We go back to the beginning. The heart is the center of our existence. It's the center of all of our affections, all of our desires. The heart is what propels us forward. Where the heart goes, we go. Where our heart goes, our character goes, our words go, our deeds go. Verse 8, this is the central command of the text. Verse 8, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish, make stable, place firmly, fix, strengthen. It has the idea of being resolved. It has the idea of determination. Establish your hearts. It's literally the opposite of being double-minded. Two or three times James has said, don't be double-minded. This is the opposite. This is single-minded determination. In the book of Luke, it says that Jesus uh, fixed his face towards Jerusalem. It's the same word. He's determined, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life. This is what James is asking of us. Again, this command is rooted in the gospel. It's rooted in what God has already done for us. 2 Thessalonians 2.17 Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Who establishes us? Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, he establishes our hearts. And then in Hebrews 13, 9, the author just says simply this, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Those are the same, those are the same Greek word, strengthened, established. What we need more than anything else is for Christ and his grace to establish our hearts. So establishing our hearts is an act of faith. It's faith in what Christ has done. We establish our hearts in Christ by remembering these two things about Christ. Verse 11, that he is compassionate and merciful. Jesus Christ is compassionate and merciful. Jesus Christ did not go to the cross grumbling about you. Stupid Brady. If it wasn't for him, it's not what he did. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. What's Christ's joy in that moment? You. The, the, one thing he, the, the one thing the guy who had everything didn't have yet, you. Your heart. That's the joy set before him. 
knowing that if he dies, he wins your heart, my heart. He didn't go grumbling. He didn't go sighing. He didn't go complaining. Second, so first, establish your heart in the compassion and mercy of Christ. But second, establish your heart with the integrity of Christ. Jesus Christ's yes is yes. His no is no. Jesus has never made a promise that he hasn't kept. Jesus has never said, well, I'm working on it. Jesus has never said, well, when I get around to it, Jesus has never said, if I can find the time. He's never said that. Jesus has said, yes, I will carry out the redemptive, salvific plan of the Father. Yes, I will do it. And he did. Jesus said, no, I will not succumb to temptation. I will not succumb to sin. I will not, I will not let you live forever in your sin. No. His yes was yes. His no was no. You can trust the promises of Jesus Christ. But there's more. There's more. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Listen, it's not, it's not just that Jesus has kept all of his promises, and he has. <clears throat> it's better. Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise of God. Listen to me. If you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I do not want you to trust in Christianity this morning. I want you to trust in Christ this morning. I want you to trust in the person, the God-man, who is the yes. Do you see the difference? We're not just trusting in a promise that Jesus makes. We're trusting in the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus. See, I can believe the promise that Jesus will return, and he will. And when he returns, he will take me home. But when I stand before God in that judgment, because the judge is standing at the door, right? The judge is standing at the door. So when I stand before the judge, I need a lot more than just the promise that Jesus is going to return, don't I? If I don't also have the person of Christ, I will stand as guilty before that judge. I need both. I need the person who is the yes of God. He is the yes. Jesus is promising, James is promising us that the return of Christ is near. The coming, verse 8, the coming of the Lord is near. This word coming is the Greek word parousia. It's a technical word. It's a, it's a common word in that culture. It's the word that means when a king goes out, the king goes out and he fights the battle and he wins. Yay, the king won. The emperor won. <clears throat> and now as he returns to the city, as he returns to Rome, this is his parousia. He's returning as the conquering king. 
with the spoils of war. And all the people would run out of the city and they would greet the king outside the city. And the king would celebrate and he would honor all of his generals and warriors, many of whom would be his own sons. And he would say, this is my son. He performed valiantly in the fight. And he would hand out accolades and rewards and gifts from the spoils of war. And all the people would shout and cheer. And then they would all flood back into the city and they'd build a monument to the guy and they'd all live happily ever after. That's the word the apostles used to describe Jesus coming back. Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back as our conquering king, as our victor. You see, Jesus will return as both savior and judge, won't he? He'll return as both savior and judge. We know that he'll return as judge because our text says that, but look at Hebrews 9:28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, not to deal with sin, Christian, but to save, to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. So back to our lesson. Let your heart be strengthened today by the inevitable return of Christ, our Savior and our Judge. Is Christ returning as your Savior? If He's not, if He's only returning as your judge, then you need to go back and read the first six verses. It's not pretty. It will be a condemnation. It will be to deal with sin. Instead of being the joyous people that flood out to greet Jesus, you're going to be one of those that have been conquered by Jesus being dragged behind him. That's literally what they would do. The enemy army is now the slaves, right? And I'm dragging them back. Look who I beat. You see, Jesus knows that he can't let us all live together with those who are still in a place of rebellion against him. If you are still the enemy of God, how on earth could God let there be a peaceful heaven, a joyous heaven, where there's still a subset of those who are against God? And so he will return as judge and conqueror of those. You say, well, Brady, I'm, I'm good, I'm moral. I'm good and moral, and so I won't be the enemy of God. And let me just warn you right now, if you think you are good and moral, you are the enemy of God. Because God's system is not a morality system, it's a grace system. And every time you stand up and say, I'm good and moral, you are rejecting grace. You're rejecting the God of grace. You are the enemy of God. And if that's you this morning, I would, I would beg and plead with you, let Christ return as your Savior, not to deal with your sins. Confess your sins to Him. Turn them over to Him. Ask for His cleansing and forgiveness and receive His life. You see, if Jesus only returns as a judge and not a Savior, 
You're stuck living today and forever in guilt and shame and condemnation. And listen, if Jesus only returns as a Savior and not a judge, if Jesus only comes back as our Savior and he doesn't come back as the judge of all the earth, then there's no justice. There's no righteousness. There's no hope. There's no transformation of our hearts. If we're not giving God permission to judge us, and not that we give him permission, but if God, if God doesn't come back and judge our hearts, we're left with stinking, rotten hearts. And then that leaves you living this life full of vengeance, full of fighting, full of hatred, full of impatience, full of grumbling, full of despair, full of apathy, full of quitting. But if there is a Savior and a judge returning, if he's coming back, then every wrong, every injustice, every unrighteousness will be made right. Everyone who endures will be honored by Christ. Every wound of our hearts will be healed by Christ. Every purpose of our life will be revealed. If there is a Savior and judge returning, then we can actually live a meaningful life, a life of purpose, and a life of forgiveness and peace. No justice, no peace. I get it. I get it. But if Christ is justice, then we can have peace. Right? If our only hope for justice is this world and our leaders and the marches and the, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing all that. I'm just saying, if that's our only hope, then we'll never have peace. We'll never have peace. Is Jesus your Savior? Is Jesus your judge? Make him your Savior today so that then you can readily receive him as your judge without terror, without fear. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, send your son. Give the word. Jesus, come quickly. The spirit and the bride cry out, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Rescue us. Save us. Jesus, as someone who has received you as my Savior, I do not fear you as my judge. I welcome it. Judge the evil right out of me. Burn it out of me. Even today, Jesus, even today, Holy Spirit, would you, would you judge the sin out of me, making me more and more like Jesus himself? I can say this confidently because I know that with Jesus, my Savior, there is no condemnation. The judge standing at the door does not bring fear to my heart. I pray that it won't bring fear to the hearts of those hearing my voice. May we rest assured that you, Jesus, are the righteous judge. You make all things new. You prepare a perfect, peaceful place for us. And for anyone who's in here this morning who is still the enemy of God, God, I pray for repentance. I pray for faith. I pray for a trust 
in the life-giving love of Jesus. And I pray all this in his name. Amen.